Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Let's go and grab them. Turn to Matthew chapter one. We'll be again in Matthew chapter one this morning. We're going to finish up that chapter. And then Christmas Eve, we're going to begin chapter two together and study this star and the journey of, of the wise men as they've made their way to worship Jesus. So Matthew one, we are free from the genealogy. So you've made your way through that. Well done. We made our way through that. And now we get to the story. We get to the actual story, the narrative of uh, what we consider Christmas. So Advent uh, is a Latin term, which means arrival. And so it's been practiced for thousands of years in church history. Uh, We practiced this for thousands of years, looking back at the first coming of Jesus, celebrating and worshiping him for what it was, but then also looking forward to, as Christians, we believe in a day that Jesus will return to make all things right, to make all things new, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, to establish his kingdom here. So we long for that day, and Advent reminds us to long for that uh, in the same way the Jews were longing for their Messiah to come, we long for him to come uh, yet again. So here's the goal for this morning. I'm gonna try to stay locked into Matthew 1, but on the screen right now will be a few verses we're gonna look at. Uh, I'm gonna reference a few of them. We're gonna read a couple of them, but I just, I wanna stay locked in here in Matthew chapter 1. Something happens for us in translation. I don't know if you've experienced this when you are talking to somebody and you know you're saying the right words, but they are not hearing what you're saying. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you in your marriage? Just me? It does happen? You're like, I I know I've said this. I know I'm saying this the right way. Uh, The Bible was not originally written in English. I know it's hard for us to believe as Westerners that not everybody speaks English, but they didn't. Uh, It was written, the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, which is an ancient language. It's really hard uh, to interpret. And the New Testament was written in Greek. There's some Aramaic mixed in both places, but uh, those two languages then get translated into English. What gets even more interesting is when the New Testament quotes Old Testament things and then translates it into English. So we go from Hebrew to Greek and then into English, which is the way a lot of us feel talking to our kids. Is it not? I feel like I'm, I'm on the third dimension now. I don't know what's happening. So I wanna walk us through this and I wanna look at a few words uh, that I want us to really have in context to understand what's happening. Otherwise, we romanticize this story and we tell it in ways that aren't actually true. So let's just read through these verses that I wanna pick it apart verse by verse. Matthew chapter one, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. 
So I don't know where you fall as far as your relationship with Jesus, how long you've been following him, but there are moments in our lives where the more that we get to know about Jesus, the more that it reveals about ourselves. Have you recognized that at any point in your life? The more that you know of Jesus, the more it illuminates some things about yourself. And the truth is, the more you know about Jesus, the more it illuminates things you don't like about yourself, the things you really, really don't like about who you are. This happens a lot when, for parents. Like, uh, you think you are something. Like, you think you're patient, and then you have children. And you recognize, ah, I'm not as patient as I thought I was. Uh, you think you have a clean mouth and then you get around certain things and then words come out, right? There's, there's ways that things inform. The more you know about them, the more they inform who you are. Well, that happens in following Jesus. It's my own belief that I think that's why people leave the church. I think what happens in good places, good churches, is that the more we begin to learn about Jesus, the more we begin to learn about God the Father, the more it illuminates things we don't like about ourselves, and as a rule, people run from things that make us feel uncomfortable, make us have to face things about ourselves. But in following Jesus, he begins to illuminate things about ourselves. So I wanna point a few of those things out here this morning uh, as we study through this in Matthew chapter one. So let's begin in verse 18. And we're gonna go slowly through this verse because there are words in here that we need to understand. Now the birth, the word birth, there were three words in. This word in the Greek is the same word as genealogy back in verse one. It's the same Greek word. Now, Matthew begins, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then we get here into verse 18. Now the genealogy, now the birth. But the word actually means origin. It means beginning. Another way to say that would be Genesis. It means Genesis. This is the Genesis of Jesus Christ. So what's happening here is that Matthew has tried the boring genealogy thing. He's like, ah, it's not working. Let me try another way. And so now he's giving us a story to explain the genealogy. So as we read through this, I want you to keep in mind what we studied in the genealogy, how Matthew traced the lineage of Jesus from Israel to the kings to exile. That, that was on purpose, how he traveled this, this route. Now he says the birth of Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's not his last name. I just wanna be clear with that so we all know, like he's not from the Christ family, Mr. Christ. That's not who he is. Uh, he didn't become a doctor. He's Dr. Christ. Christ uh, means anointed one or Messiah. It's a title. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah. This is the genesis of Jesus, the anointed one or the Messiah. And then he says, it took place in this way. Maybe you've been experienced this. You've been having conversations with people and you give them information and their eyes glaze over. It happens to me every Sunday about this time is what happens. <laughs> their eyes glaze over. They are, they're not paying attention whatsoever. And so you say, okay, let me try this another way. For me, it happens a lot when I'm trying to explain how great my friends are, how great people are, or how great my wife is, or how great my kids are. And I'm like, let me just tell you this. And they're not paying attention. I'm like, okay, maybe this will help. And then you tell a story to illuminate how great that person has happened to you. Maybe it's more of you're trying to tell how awful somebody is. And you're like, let me tell you this story. This will help you understand why this person is the worst person I've ever met on the face of the earth. This is what's happening here. Matthew is saying, all right, the genealogy, it's facts. Now let me tell you a story that illuminates this genealogy. Maybe this will help. So here's the story, all about how. My life got flipped. All right, here's, um, I didn't do that in the chapel service, just so you know. I'm not sure that would have communicated well. Okay, here, uh, here's how the story begins. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now this word betrothed is not a word that we use regularly uh, in America. So this word is bigger than engagement, uh, but it's smaller than marriage. So there's a three-step process for the Hebrews and the way that they would have uh, gotten married. And it begins at a very young age. 
So at some point in Mary and Joseph's very young age, their mom and dad met another family's mom and dad, and they had a little girl named Mary. And they thought, man, this Mary would be perfect for my Joseph. And so somewhere around the age of seven or eight, they arranged a marriage for them. I don't know how your marriage is. Maybe you would have preferred that. I don't know where you fall right now, but this is how it would have happened. They're from a town called Nazareth. And Nazareth was maybe, as archaeologists have dug it up, maybe 500 people. And if you've ever been to a small school or you've worked in a small company or you've been to a church about our size or smaller, what you know about people when they're gathered in groups of 500 people is that everybody knows everything about everybody. You understand what I'm saying? And they like to tell other people about the things they know about that person. And so this small town of Nazareth, there's this Mary and Joseph, and they're arranged in marriage. This is what's called the engagement. And so they're engaged to be married. Then at some point, they would reach an age somewhere between the age of probably 12 to 15. And at that point, they would enter into a betrothal agreement. Now, it's at this point that money is exchanged, dowries are exchanged, goats are exchanged, however you want to pay the bride price. That's what happens, this betrothal period. And it would last about a year. So what we're looking at here is Mary is generously 14 years old. Joseph could have been anywhere from like 13 to 20. Uh, but this is what we're looking at here. And it's, it's in this period of the betrothal. And it's in this year that Mary and Joseph don't see each other. For all intents and purposes, the husband, Joseph, would have left his bride and he would have gone away to prepare a place for them. Does that sound familiar? So he would go away to prepare a place. What else is interesting is that in Hebrew, the word for betrothal comes from the same root word that we get, sanctification or being sanctified. So it's in this period of sanctification that the groom goes away to build a house for he and his bride to live in. And it's here. But at this point, um, they would be referred to as husband and wife. We read earlier that Joseph wants to divorce her quietly. When we think about engagements breaking up, we don't call them divorces. We say, well, they just broke up. Well, this is, this is a legally binding agreement that they are in. And so they've entered this betrothal phase of their relationship. And then we continue reading in verse 18. But before they came together, and that's a very biblical way of saying before they loved each other, uh, before they came together sexually, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This word found is how we get the word eureka. It's a surprise. That's what we're trying to understand here. Joseph is surprised that Mary is pregnant because there's no biological way this should have happened. And so eureka, she's, she's pregnant. So what's happened now is that the angel has appeared to Mary and has told Mary, you're going to have a child and it will be the savior of the world. Mary says, let it be unto me as you have said. And then she travels to see a relative, probably a cousin named Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And she stays with Elizabeth for three months, which would have been during the betrothal period. And so most scholars are telling us this is about the time she came back from seeing Elizabeth. And about the three to four month mark, now Mary's starting to show that she is pregnant. No one's asking if she's pregnant because we know how that goes. But the assumption is she's pregnant and she is with Joseph. And so now there are rumors in this 500 person town of, of Nazareth about what has gone on. And there are two options. Either Mary cheated on Joseph or Mary and Joseph have been impure. These are the only two options. So this is all happening in the betrothal period. She is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And what this means is probably Mary hasn't even told Joseph yet. He probably hasn't even seen her yet because they're in this betrothal period. But she is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Here's what Matthew does that's subtle for us in his Genesis account is that now he references the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit, which if you're paying attention should jog your memory about another Genesis, another origin account that references the Holy Spirit. And it's a good thing to go back to the very first time that's mentioned. And I do this a lot and you're getting tired of it, but Genesis chapter one is where this all begins. In Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse two, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So I want us to use our sanctified imaginations without getting too graphic. The womb of a mother. Would you describe the womb of a mother as void and dark and waters? Does that sound like the womb of a mother? So what's happening is that Matthew, what he's trying to tell us in Matthew chapter one is this is a brand new beginning. This is the brand new Genesis. But he mentions the Holy Spirit. The first time we read about the Holy Spirit in scriptures in Genesis 1-2, we read the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Now for an original Hebrew reader or hearer, listener to hear that, the word waters references chaos. The seas, they're chaos. The ocean, it's chaos. And I for one agree with that. I would much rather go to space than swim in the ocean. I really would. I've seen too many documentaries. I've seen too many pictures. I don't care if they're CGI. I don't care. They scare me to death. The creatures that are under the water. Maybe it's just God's testing ground down there. He's just testing, will this work? Does this go here? I don't know. Do they glow in the dark? Now they do. Will this eat seven people at a time? Let me try. (laughs) It's nightmare fuel is what that is in the waters. And so I feel like I'm part Hebrew, that I agree. It's chaotic. I think waters are chaos. And so what we read in the original Scriptures, Genesis 1 in the Hebrew scriptures, is that the Spirit of God, that where the Spirit of God works best is in chaos. And what the Spirit of God does is that he brings order to chaos. So Matthew is laying all of these pieces on this story because he's done the genealogy. Maybe we didn't quite get it there, so now he's giving us a story. And he begins the story with this illustration of the Genesis, of the beginning, of the origin. So let's just think about Joseph. Let's think about his life. He has met the woman of his parents' dreams for him. I'll let that one sit for a second and then. All right, so they're engaged to be married. Now they're they're betrothed and they are looking forward to a future together. This period of time, he's working hard to build this home, this room, this building for him and his future family to live in together. Three and a half months into it, he hears that Mary is pregnant. Couldn't you define that as chaos for Joseph? Unseen, unheard of chaos for him. So what we're reading in Matthew is that, hey, there's chaos here. And it's a new beginning. It's a new start. There's something happening under the surface which is why I don't like the ocean, because things happen under the surface. All right, verse, uh, let's go back to verse 19 of Matthew chapter one. And her husband, Mary's husband, again, they're betrothed, so now they're called husband and wife. It's a legally binding agreement. Being a just man, that word just means that he's righteous. He does what is right. He adheres to the law. He is faithful. This is what we know about Joseph. He is a just man, and he is unwilling to put her to shame. He is just, and also he is kind. He's righteous. He does the right thing, but he really does care about her. He cares about people. He's just, and he is kind. And for people who are just and kind, when chaos comes into just and kind people's lives, 
It's totally unexpected because we live righteous lives to avoid chaos, don't we? We try to do things the right way that we might avoid chaos. It's what we tell our kids. And to be kind to the people. He's trying to avoid chaos, but chaos has come into this young man's life. Being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. This word resolved is not a head thing, it's a heart thing. It means he desired to. This was his choice. He wanted to do this. It wasn't like, well, I guess I have to. This was a desire. And there's two parts of this desire. He wants to divorce her quietly. Now, the Hebrew law for a woman who was caught in adultery is that she could be brought before the leaders and be stoned to death. That is what, what fate awaited for Mary. And Joseph, who is a just man, he knows the law. He knows what should happen, but he's also a kind man, decides the way to combine his justice and his kindness is to divorce her quietly. So he desires to divorce her, but he desires to do so quietly. He has decided how he will handle the chaos in his life. This is what he's decided to do. But then God intervenes, verse 20. But as he considered these things. Now we read considered and we think about the way that our minds work and we don't mean them to or even intentionally when we consider things. When we think considered, we think about the very reason why you could leave here and you could drive to Covington and you could get to Covington and you have no idea how you got there because you were considering other things. Does that make sense? We think considering, we think it's almost on autopilot. But this word consider, this is one of those words that's gonna help us shift some understanding of this story. In the Greek, the original language, it means that he thought on this with increasing passion or anger. The root word of the Greek word for considered is anger, wrath, and passion. So yes, we can tell the stories about how Joseph was a just and a kind man and he was just so willing to divorce her. What we're learning here is that he's just like you and me. The chaos came into his life. And while in his mind he was going to, and in his heart he desired, I'm gonna handle my chaos the way I need to. I think we all understand when we try to handle our own chaos, we're still left with the residue, aren't we? Like we're still left trying to sort things out. And so this young man who had a future planned with him and Mary is angry. He's been just, he's been righteous, he's been kind. He is a good man. Why should this happen to him? Why, why would she cheat on him? Why would she go somewhere else? Why would she find love somewhere else? Why? Why, while he's building a house for them to live in, would this girl go sleep with somebody else? This is what he's wrestling with. And as he considers them, as he's thinking on them, he's increasing in passion and anger. And I know you don't do that because you're Christians and that's fine. But isn't this true? The more you dwell on chaos, the more you have to begin to sort out your anger. And he's furious. And the more he considers, the more furious he gets. Because you understand that. The more you think about something, the more you think about the things that you thought you knew, but now looking back on it, oh, I should have known this was coming. I, I knew the way Mary looked at that kid when she was eight years old. I should have known. I should have known her parents liked this other, other boy better than me. I should have known. So now he's angry at Mary, and then he's angry at her parents. Now he's angry at his parents. He's angry at the culture around. Like he's, he's angry, and he's sifting in it. 
One commentator I read said this would have better been translated as he sat in the anger of these things. As he seated himself in the anger of his chaos. And what I love about God is that this is where he meets Joseph. Not sweet, innocent, oh, I mean, it's okay, baby. We'll figure it out. I'm gonna divorce you quietly. No, in the fuming rage of betrayal is where he meets Joseph. As he sat in these things, as it, as it spurred more and more anger in him, as he considered these things, it continues in verse 20, behold, pay attention, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now this reference to Joseph as the son of David is meant to illuminate that he is in the kingly line of the Christ, of the Messiah. It's been prophesied to all the Jewish people that this Messiah, this rescuer, this deliverer would come through the family of David. Joseph is of the family and household of David. So the angel's first interactions to him are, remember who you are, son of David, do not fear. Now, I don't know how you men handle situations like this, but when I'm angry, the last thing I need to hear is, hey, don't be afraid. So I'm like, afraid? I'm not afraid. I'm furious. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not in fear. I'm just mad. I'm just angry and I'm stewing in it. And as a card-carrying member of those who sit in anger, I'm just letting you know, I'd never consider my anger rooted in fear. But as a counselor, I would tell you, yeah, it is. Our anger is rooted in a fear of a lack of control. That's where it comes from. And he's furious. And the first thing the angel says, hey, don't be mad. The angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, to continue this betrothal to the marriage. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's now the angel's reminding Joseph, listen, this is what the Spirit does. You wanna bring order to your chaos? You're not gonna find it through the way that you've rationalized in your mind and in your heart to divorce her quietly. That's not gonna absolve you of it. What will absolve you of all that rage and anxiety is if you understand that God is in the middle of it. It's from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings order to chaos. Then verse 21, this is where a lot of the power is. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. So I want you to notice the way the angel distinguishes between the role of husband and wife here. The angel begins with Mary will bear a son. Mary will bear the son. Mary will carry the child. The wife will carry the child. Joseph, here is your role. Your role is to name him and you will name him Jesus. So in this culture, uh, when a couple would bring their baby and present him to the Lord, there'd be a priest there. And at that moment, it's up to the husband to name the child, which is why with Zechariah and Elizabeth, that whole story where Zechariah is mute, it's such a big deal that he's mute because how is he gonna name this child John if he's mute? And so here, what the angel is saying is, listen, listen, Joseph, here's how it's gonna work. I get that you're angry, but I'm gonna do it my way. She will bear this child and you will be right next to her and you will bring him to the temple and you will call his name Jesus. 
This is how it's gonna work. I get that you're angry. I get that it's not the way you wanted it to happen. I get that there's chaos in your life, but you need to understand, I hover over the waters of the deep. She's gonna have the baby and you're gonna name him Jesus. This is how it's gonna go. Doesn't ask for any questions or suggestions from Joseph, just says, I'm in charge. This is how we're doing it. But it's interesting here, the name that is declared. You will name him Jesus. So again, this is a Hebrew name translated into Greek and then into English. The Hebrew name here is Yehoshua. Say Yehoshua. Say it again, Yehoshua. Okay, so that comes from two different Hebrew words. Yeho, which is the um, kind of the abbreviated version of the word Yahweh, which we studied in Exodus. This is God's divine name for himself, for God the Father, Yahweh. And Shua means to save or deliver or to rescue. The name of Jesus means Yahweh saves. That's what the name means. I don't know how you named your kids, if you paid attention to what the names meant or anything like that. So I'm gonna walk you through our three kids' names. Um, Colton's name, Coltown, means from a dark place. You can decipher that however you would like to. Uh, but for us, we were in a pretty dark season when the Lord blessed us with him. Uh, and then Kason's name means house of joy. If you ever met Kason, that's what he is. He's a bumbling house of joy is what he is. And then Landry's name means ruler. So I just feel like, feel like we nailed it, if I'm gonna be honest with you. So Jesus' name, it means something. And particularly in this culture, names meant something. It means Yahweh saves. Then in the Greek, it would be called Jesus. And then uh, because we're Americans and we speak English, we don't like soft J's, we do hard ones. So now it's Jesus. So it went from this really romantic word to what you would order at a Mexican restaurant. But that's, that's what we call him now, Jesus. All right, so, but the name is Yahweh saves. But then it's interesting. You will call his name Jesus. And then the angel gives a why in verse 21. For he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. But here's where it gets interesting. Who's gonna save? Because how it reads is, you shall call him Yahweh saves, for Yahweh saves will save his people from their sins. So Yahweh saves or Yahweh saves saves? Question is, well, are you saying that Yahweh, God the Father, saves? Or that Yahweh saves, Jesus is the one who saves? And I think Matthew's answer to that question would be, yep. Yep. The point he's making is that this Jesus, this baby, is Yahweh, and this is how he will save. He is God in flesh. The very name, we just sang about it. When we declare the name of, we're declaring Yahweh saves, God saves. When you pray it over your family, Yahweh saves your family. When you pray it uh, over your anxiety, Yahweh saves you from anxiety. This is what we're declaring. Yahweh saves. But what's confusing is, well, who does the saving? And biblically, the answer is, uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh, they do. They, they, Yahweh saves, and also Yahweh saves, saves. And it's how they save. So that's the point here that he is making. This, this Yahweh and he's not doing it through dissertation or argument. He's doing it through story. That's important for some of us when it comes to sharing your faith. Then, he's, then the question is, well, who will he save? Well, you expect it to read, he will save the world, right? Because that's what John three sixteen says. He will save his people. Well, so now the question is, well, who are his people? Well, Matthew's glad you asked because he literally just told you in the genealogy, this is who his people are. His people are the sons and daughters of Abraham. 
His people are those in Israel, then those who under the kings and those in exile. These are his people. Who will he save? He will save his people. And here's why this is so jarring. Because the Jews wanted to be saved, but then he says he will save his people from their sins. He's not saving them from the sins of Rome, not saving them from the sins of Syria, not saving them from the sins of Babylon. He's saving his people from their sins. And for generations, the Israelites have said, listen, would you just rescue us? We're the good ones here. And God's like, I've got evidence that proves otherwise. And I'll prove it in this genealogy. He will save his people from their sins. And this, this name, this verse is the entire story of the Old Testament. Who are his people? Well, it begins with humanity back in Genesis chapter one. God created Adam and Earth, man, or Adam and Eve, man, man and woman. And he gave them a great world to live in. And he gave them a way to flourish in that world. And yet, they chose to pursue their own version of good and evil. They chose to pursue their own authority. And so they failed. And so the way that God responded to their failure was to bring in Israel, was to bring in a new family. Well, if humanity can't do it, I'm gonna focus in on this family of Abraham and this will be my people, my chosen people. And I will raise up in them. I will give them the law. I will rescue them from Egypt. I will give them bread from heaven. I will give them water from a rock and they will be my people. I will give them the promised land. And like humanity does, Israel fails. And so then God narrows it a bit more. So then God focuses on a particular family inside the family of Israel, the family of David and his Davidic line of kings. And the kings, wouldn't you know it, the kings end up failing. And then they find themselves now in exile. And this is where the Old Testament kind of ends. With the people of God in exile. Some have come back to Jerusalem, but it's not quite the same, so they still feel like they're in exile, even though they're home. And this is the whole point. This is where they land. So when it says that Jesus will save his people, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about failures. That's who he will save from their sins. And to Joseph, what he's saying is, you're one of them too. I'm gonna save my people from their sins. And the word sins here is interesting. There's a number of words in the New Testament that uh, describe what we're talking about. Uh, but the word sin is more generic. And what it means is just to fail. It simply means that you have a target or a goal and you miss that mark. That's what sin is. Sin is failure. The word sin doesn't give us any indication as far as the whys. Why did you sin? What caused you to sin? Sin is simply you failed. You failed to meet the mark that God had for you. That's what sin is. So here, the angel tells Joseph, you're gonna name him Jesus. You're gonna name him Yahweh saves because Yahweh saves will save his people from their sins. So I want us to think through again where Joseph is. If there's a sinner in Joseph's life right now, it's not him, is it? He can point the fingers at other people who have sinned, who have failed. He is a just and a kind man. And because he's just and kind and someone he loved had failed, now he's sitting in anger. So much so that now God has to intervene to him. And to say, listen, I'm giving you a son and he is the Messiah who will save his people from their sins. From their sins, not from bad behavior, not from wrong thinking, not from addictions, from their sins. The problem for the Jewish people is they've been looking for somebody to save them from a government 
to save them um, as a nation from some kind of oppression. And the whole point of this is God saying, listen, the oppression is within you. It's never been about Rome. It's never been about Babylon. And for Joseph, it's never been about Mary. This is about you. He will save his people from their sins. This Jesus was coming to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves, no matter how just and kind we have been. No matter how willing we were to do the right thing in humility and kindness, no matter. No matter you've been in church for 40 years and have never said a cuss word, to last night you snorted cocaine, all of us. He came to save us from our sins. So what happens for us when we begin to learn more about Jesus is that we learn more about ourselves. And what you begin to learn is that you aren't who you pretend to be. Particularly in the South in a Baptist church, you aren't who you pretend to be. And the more you learn about Jesus, the more it illuminates the great divide between you and who he is and who he calls you to be. You have to do something with that. You don't have to believe it, but you have to acknowledge it and do something with it. And what a lot of people do is, there's two options for a lot of people. They run and say, I'm not, I don't wanna hear that anyone, I don't wanna hear that I'm a sinner. I want you to tell me how great I am, that I is kind and I is, I is beautiful. I want, you, I want you to tell me that. Tell me I'm gonna be rich. Tell me I'm gonna be successful. Don't tell me other stuff. And so you run. The other option is that you try to compensate for the gap by righteous living. And that is exhausting to continually try to bridge the gap of your depravity through doing more right things because the problem is you still do wrong things or you do right things in the wrong way and then you have to cover your tracks so you lie about it and you deceive people. He came to save his people from their sins which tells us something. When you say the name Jesus, here's what you're saying. I am a sinner that needed a savior. That's what you're saying. When you say Yahweh saves, what you're saying is Jeremy doesn't save. What you're saying is I don't save, Yahweh saves. But the problem for us when it comes to good and evil is that we are really good about seeing evil in other people, aren't we? Like experts in it. We're good at it. And the evil we see in other people is very black and white. There's no nuance to their evil. Like, she cut me off because she's just a jerk. That's why she cut me off. But if I cut her off, it's because I'm in a hurry to get somewhere important and she'll understand, right? Isn't that what we do? Well, that person was addicted to this. I can't believe that. It's just my phone, I'm not addicted to it. I just can't put it down. It's not that big of a deal. Isn't that what we do? So that's the issue for us. And what happens now is that we have to come face to face with who we are. We need to come face to face with what we are. And then we begin to excuse or to blame other people. And when we do that, we sit in our anger, don't we? Because when my marriage problems are my wife's problems, oh, I love sitting in that chair. It stews in me, and I've got all the ammunition as to why it's her fault. Well, we're in this place financially because of my kids. Then I sit in that seat, and I judge my kids, and I feel really good about it. I feel like I'm not the problem, they are. Well, it's my boss's fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's my coach's fault that I'm not playing. It's the government's fault. Man, we love that one, don't we? The whole time. God is saying, Yahweh saves. And he saves his people from their sins. We consider, consider, continue to consider these things like Joseph. And what it does, even though we've planned our lives to be just and kind, 
chaos ensues. And as we consider more and more, we get deeper into that cycle. It produces anxiety and frustration in us. It just breeds on itself. But by the grace of God, he brings us to a place to see our own brokenness and our own need for him. That when he says he came to save his people from their sins, that includes us. It doesn't mean just your spouse or your ex-spouse. Us, he came to save us from our sins. We begin to see that Christmas itself is a declaration of our failure to save ourselves. He came because we couldn't do it. Verse 22, now it's not the angel speaking, this is Matthew giving us some background. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now for us, that's Isaiah 7, 14. That's a Christmas verse, right? That's a Christmas one. That's for unto us will be born this day in the city of David. We know that. This is one of these. The problem is, for the original hearers of this, that wasn't a Christmas verse. The context of Isaiah 7 and 8 is that the people of God, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, is being attacked by Syria. And as they're being attacked, it's because King Ahaz, who is a terrible king, uh, has led them into some really precarious situations. And he's compromised a lot of things. And so Syria is coming in. And Isaiah prophesies to Ahaz, you will know that God is with you. And here, here is how you will know. A young woman will give birth to a child and you will call his name Emmanuel because that means God with us. This in its context is not directly speaking of Jesus, although it is in the future. But the context is this. There is a king who doesn't deserve God to intervene and yet he is. God is with us. And so we read here in Matthew chapter one, when we call Jesus Emmanuel, what we're declaring is I'm just like Ahaz and I've compromised my values, I've compromised my faith and he's still with me. Yahweh saves his people from their sins. So now Joseph has to do something with this. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He did not sleep with her until she gave birth to Jesus. And look at this, the end of verse 25, he did it. And he called his name Jesus. Yahweh saves. Because in the midst of all the chaos, God met him and said, listen, I've got the Holy Spirit over this. I need you to trust me. And I need you to get down out of your seat of anger. And I'm gonna give you peace when you finally confess and repent that you too need saving from your sins. Uh, Paul, the apostle, would say it this way in Colossians chapter one. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God in flesh. And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the glory of Christmas. Not that Jesus came to bring you peace within your family, although that would be great, but that Jesus came to be, bring peace between the sinner and the holy God. This is the peace that we speak of when we speak of Christmas. It's vertical peace. 
And the more that we long for horizontal relational peace without first getting to vertical peace, you'll never find it. You can be just and you can be kind. You can make resolves in your own mind about how you're gonna handle your family, how you're gonna handle your work situation. But at the end of the day, you will still be left with the residue of your anger you're gonna sit in until you come face to face with the fact that while they might be sinners, you are too. And he came to save his people from their sins, not from their awkwardness, but from their sins through the blood of Jesus on the cross. Jesus didn't come to fix our behavior. He came to save us from sin, our sin, our personal evil. So if you were paying attention, we didn't begin our service this morning with confession and repentance. And I would love to say that was on purpose, but the truth is I forgot to do it. So I was praying about it. I felt like God was saying, I got it. Like I'm hovering over the chaos of your forgetfulness. I want you to do it at the end. So here's what I'm gonna ask us to do. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Typically we begin each service with a prayer of confession. But we have a moment right now is to actually consider what we're confessing. Many of us this morning have sat in the anger of someone else's sin against us for far too long. And what you've needed is a divine encounter with a risen Jesus to remind you that Yahweh saves to save his people from their sins. And his people includes you. Your spouse is not the problem. Your children are not the problem. Your parents are not the problem. Your boss is not the problem. Somehow God leverages all of that chaos to bring order to our own souls. And I know in the room today, there are people who for too long have sat in the anger of someone else's issues. The whole time you're hearing the gospel you think you're just and kind and you don't need it. No, 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 no. He came to save his people from their sins. So maybe this morning, it might not be enough for your body to stay in that chair to confess and repent. You might need to move your body towards repentance. You might need to move to the altar to confess and repent. There's nothing holy about the altar, but there's something that happens when we move our bodies in alignment with what's happening in our hearts and lives. There might be someone today that you need to stop seeing as the problem, begin to look, begin looking at the speck or the log in your own eye. Maybe you're just angry with God because of things he's withheld from you. And that anger towards God because you think you deserve something because you think you're just and kind is causing anxiety and stress and debilitating fear in your life. He came to reconcile us. So as we begin with confession, I would just ask you to confess in your heart sins of your own doing to the Lord, to agree with him. This is my stuff to own. I did it. I failed you. No one made me do it. No one caused this in me. I did this. To agree with him, it's sin. It's sin whether someone made you do it or not, whether someone set the table for you to do it or not, whether someone threw the first punch or not, it is sin. And the only way to peace with him 
It's through confession. And then a repentance, a repentant heart that changes our mind about it, that no longer will hold that sin over someone else while not looking at our own sin first. It's changing your seat of anger. You've been sitting in it for far too long and it's robbed you of joy and delight and peace. And it's not because God wasn't offering it. So the repentance is to get out of that seat, to forgive, to see it for what it is. Maybe today you don't know this Jesus. So what you know of Christmas is what the world knows of Christmas, but I'm here to tell you it's better than that. That God himself came in flesh to rescue you, to rescue you in a way that you can never rescue yourself. And the longer you live and the more things you try, the more you'll become aware of it. And my challenge to you is to run towards that, not away from it. Run towards your weakness. Run towards your frailty. And find the strength of Jesus and the rescue of Yahweh there. Father, we love you. You are a gift. You're a gift as a perfect heavenly father. You're a gift as the calming of chaos through peace. You're a gift as the son of God who put on flesh to dwell among us. So God, for those of us in the room who refuse to look inwardly because we'd rather blame other people because that's easier, God, would you remind us of this account? For those of us sitting in our anger, Father, would you give us courage and strength to get up, get out of that seat, to see you for who you are, which then illuminates who we are, and that we would run back into who you are. You are a good and faithful God with steadfast love for his children. May we rest in that peace today. In Jesus' name, amen.